Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We invite your presence here with us, enlighten our minds, transform our lives, lighten the world, and come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, just to remind everybody, we will meet here next week. Class will go as usual. Uh, But for those online, we won't be broadcasting live next week. We will record it, and it'll be an audio recording. And that's because our broadcast team will be at the GC in San Antonio next week. So class will meet. We'll have the lesson. You'll get the notes. You'll get the recording. And then the following week, we will actually broadcast live again. And uh, we will be doing lesson number two in the uh, quarterly biblical missionaries titled Abraham, the first missionary. What do you think of the title of the lesson? Anybody's anybody's mind go, wait a second. There's an absolute aspect of that, isn't there? How about Noah? Was Noah a missionary? Oh, about Enoch. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know exactly what they necessarily meant by the first missionary. Even if they meant somebody who moves away from their home. Um, what about Noah? Did he move away from his home? <laughs> so, yes. Um, the memory text is Galatians 3, 6 through 8, and it's uh, from the NIV version. And notice the language from the NIV version and consider maybe why they chose the, this version. They usually choose a King James, uh, New King James, but they chose NIV. It says, consider Abraham. He, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So this language, um, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness and they would be justified, uh, justify the Gentiles by faith. When you, re- when you hear this, what do you hear? And you know the first question, what law lens are you looking through? Are you looking through a system of rules? Are you looking through desi- how life is built by the designer and creator? If you go through the system of rules, you come up with a, a different understanding. I'm going to read to you out of a book called the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary. This is uh, on this particular paragraph. Now, you have to understand, this is not an inspired book I'm about to read from. It's just intelligent, honest people sharing what they think it means. These are, these are Bible commentators. These are theologians, not inspired prophets of the Lord when you read the commentary. Everybody understand that? Okay. So here's on this passage. Accounted, or counted, reckoned, Abraham's faith was credited to his account in heaven, thus balancing the account. Accordingly, God considered Abraham a righteous man. I'm going to pause there in the reading of the commentary. So if you're going with this version, what was the reason stated here that God considered Abraham righteous? What happened that in this particular description, it says, Abraham's faith was credited to his account in heaven, thus balancing the account. So what's the reason Abraham's now considered righteous? He had a debt. Transaction. A legal document in heaven had been adjusted. The account in heaven had been adjusted. Not because Abraham was actually righteous. Not because Abraham was set right but because his account was set right. In other words, it put God's in position of dealing in fantasy, not reality. Let's keep reading the, the, the uh, commentary. Works had nothing to do with his attainment 
of the favorable credit rating in the books of heaven. You like that language? The favorable credit rating in the books of heaven. Again, why is he considered righteous? Because the books now have a positive credit rating in it. Not because Abraham is actually righteous. God simply offered it to him and he accepted it by faith. See, your credit score is based on your history. This credit score is not based on your history. This credit score is based on Jesus' history. So Jesus had to, so basically if you want to use that metaphor of our credit scores, you go around and you bounce checks, you, you, um, you, you, you don't pay off any debts that you have, but you have an older brother who has paid all his debts every time on time, and he's got perfect credit rating, and you say, you know what, I, I will trust my older brother to have perfect credit for me, and so the, 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 um, the um, bankruptcy law court then in your account will take your brother's perfect credit and put it into your credit rating. So now when you get a credit rating, your credit rating is perfect, even though you still are a completely irresponsible person spending irresponsibly. That's what they're saying. Okay? So works had nothing to do with it. His favorable credit rating in the books of heaven, God simply offered it to him and it was accepted by faith, believing that God meant exactly what he said. His own efforts could never purchase this blessed status. Faith does not satisfy the demands of the law. For the law requires perfect obedience. Therefore, if one is to be justified by faith, it must be on the basis of some other principle that works than works of the law. Pause. Still, that was still from the commentary. Do you see the difficulty these authors are having to try to answer this question? They're trying to uphold the, the exactitude of the law, but they're trying to make a way for, that, for this perfect obedience of the law to be something that you can participate in without actually breaking the law. So what do they do? They create legal loopholes. Somebody else did it, and now legally you can have that applied to your account even though you still are a complete rebel and criminal. So that's completely disregarding what Jesus said to the, uh, the old rich man about how do you read the law, and he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, you said correctly. Yes, that's, that's not regarding that. That's, that's, not, that's not justification in this model. See, this model is actually based on the premise, and this is why they go down this trail, that God's law functions like human laws function. A legal justice system that requires oversight, accountability, and inflows punishments. If you find somebody who has been uh, suffocating themselves with a plastic bag over their head, and they are really, really in bad shape, as long as they have faith that somebody else is breathing in their behalf, we can then write in their medical record that, that all's well. Because he's breathing in my behalf, so I can get right accounting of good health in my record. Keep on going. To be credited as righteous means to be given, to, to be credited as righteous means to be forgiven and admitted to the favor of God. This is still in the commentary. So what is suggested here? Think, think through what it's saying. To be credited as righteous means to be forgiven and admitted to the favor of God. So what is the obstacle here that needs to be overcome? God's favor. God. He's, he's unfavorable to us and he's unforgiving. So he needs a credit rating in our record so that he will forgive us and then favor us again. So the, the problem, this is this, the, the, what you get with an imposed law model, you get a pagan view of God. That the obstacle is God's anger, God's wrath, God's, some call it his justice, that has to be dealt with, and that's the barrier. And this is what you read in the 27 Fundamental Beliefs where it says that um, 
that Christ removed the barrier between God and man in that he removed God's wrath. God's wrath is the barrier. That's what it's saying here, but it's not true. And Man, last last two sentences in the commentary. Man can do nothing to deserve the gift of Christ's righteousness. He cannot claim it on the basis of merit. That's true. That's that's absolutely true. Okay. Divine grace makes it possible for a just God to consider repentant sinners righteous. So, so question for you guys: Was Abraham actually righteous, or only declared to be righteous? That is not what is taught as the theology in evangelical Christianity. That is not what's taught in theology at the university over here. What is taught in the theology, and I sat down with ten of them, eight of them, eight or ten of the professors, and they told me that justification is when Jesus declares you to be righteous even though you're not. I said, so God's lying. They brussled and ruffled. No, he's not. He can declare it because Jesus is righteous, and that record is applied to your record. So he's applying Jesus' record to your account. So you're righteous based on faith in Jesus because Jesus was righteous. But but am I righteous? No, you're still unrighteous. So he's declaring me, Tim Jennings, to be righteous if I accept Jesus, even though I'm not. Yes, he's lying. This is what this is what this is why a form of godliness it has no power. It's false. It's distorted. It's based, and it all stems from believing that God's law functions like our law functions. This happens because they're operating in a fantasy world. What is, and I don't mean this pejoratively. I'm not saying this to be denigrating. I'm saying this literally. What is a fantasy? Not reality. Not reality. It's not how things actually work. That's what fantasy is, not how things actually work. And it is a fantasy world to think that God's world operates like our, um, our law does. That's fantasy. God's law doesn't operate like our law. That's, a, that's not reality. From the enhanced Strong's lexicon of the New Testament, the word translated as credited or accounted is the Greek word logi logozomei. And uh, this is what it says regarding that word in the, in the uh, lexicon of the New Testament Greek. 41 occurrences uh, translates as think, nine times impute, eight times as reckon, six times as count, five times as account, four times as supposed, twice as reason, once as number, and um, translated miscellaneous five times. To reckon, count, compute, to calculate, to, to count, to take into account, to make an account, um, to pass to one's account, to impute, Things, a, thing, a thing reckoned as or to be something as availing or equivalent to. And then here's the key port at the end. It says, this word deals with reality. If I logisomei, or reckon, that I have a bank book that has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I am deceiving myself. This word refers to facts, not suppositions. So when he reckoned him as righteous, it was only because Abraham was, in reality, righteous. It wasn't he was declared to be righteous, even though he's not. 
It wasn't because there was a counting in a book that said, it's like going to your checkbook and say, I've got $1,000 in my checkbook, and you write it in your registry, but there's actually nothing in the bank. That's not what this word does. It's actual reality. So when we come back to worship the Creator, Him who made the heavens, the earth, seas, and so forth, realize God's law is a protocol upon which reality functions, we realize several key facts. One, when Adam sinned, humankind was actually changed by that. God was not changed by that. God's laws or design protocols were not changed by that. God, mankind was changed by that. This change in humankind altered what was right in mankind. In other words, altered the way God built it to something that was wrong. Another way to say that, what was right chus became unright chus. You following that? Okay, by Adam's act, what was right, built right, constructed right, operating perfectly, became unright or unrighteous. The natural state of the mind, heart, character of human beings after Adam and Eve's fall, the Bible says in Romans 8, is enmity with God. We're against him. We distrust him. We are selfish and fearful of him. Our natural state is in opposition to his, nat- his original design, unrighteous. That's our natural state. Abraham, according to the text, both here at Galatians and in Romans chapter 4, Abraham experienced a change in heart attitude toward God, moving from distrust to trust. First. And it was then, after the heart change, that God recognized him as set right. It wasn't any counting mechanism in a book. Abraham came to trust God. And thus his heart was set right, which is to justify. When you justify the margins in your Word document, what are you doing to the margins? Well, I'm going to account them as being set in line even though they're not. No, you actually move the margin. You put them all right. They're all lined up. You set what's wrong right. Justify. Set it right. That's what it means. And what's wrong that needs setting right? Our heart, our distrust of God, our fear, our self-centeredness, our orientation to protect self, the the way we we deceive ourselves and the way we think about God. And so Abraham came to trust God. His heart was set right. Thus God said, hey, he is now righteous. He's set right. He's oriented to me in a positive way again. Yes? And it can happen in a very short time. For example, the thief on the cross was said to have been mocking Jesus just like the other thief was. But on that time on the cross, he changed. He saw what he saw, came to believe, restored to trust, and asked him if he could be saved. And therefore, and he was set right. Exactly. He was set right. And because Abraham actually was set right in heart attitude and relation with God, because the heart change happened, he was then able to partake of the remedy Christ achieved. And that, and that application of Christ's achievement was applied in the heart-mind character of Abraham, not to a book in heaven. And that's what the Bible means when it, Peter says, what a wonderful privilege it is for us that we can be, we, you and me, can become partakers of what? The divine nature. The divine nature. Or it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in my record book in heaven. No, he lives in us. It's actually regeneration. This is reality. To recreate heart motives that love God and love others more than self, as was said earlier, that is what righteousness looks like. Yes? Now, don't you think there's an issue 
with past baggage that somehow all of that has to get done with instead of just changing the heart. Yes, there's a terrible issue. This, and that's because, this is a great point. Many people, well, I, I, I cheated this and I did that and I did this other thing. And, and some, that's because they're operating under imposed law constructs. And under imposed law constructs, wrong deeds have to be accounted for. There has to be a penalty paid. You just can't get away with that. That's be, under the design law, however, think about it this way. Imagine you are working for your church board on your nominating committee. And a, a name comes up to work with the children's department. And you're thinking the name, somebody, well-meaning soul, who wants to be sure we're always doing the right thing, says, wait, before, before you, well, you, you, you should know something about this person. When this person was six years of age, they had a bad viral gastroenteritis and they had terrible nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and they vomited all over their mother's new carpet and diarrhea on their new furniture. And if you're on the nominating committee, you go, you shake your head like, what? Why are you telling us this? It was gross. It was disgusting. Still shaking your head and go, okay, I, I'm sure it was. It was. They're, they're, they're 35 now. It was when they, they, were, they were six this happened, you said? Yes. Are they still sick today? Are they vomiting, having diarrhea today? Well, no, they're actually quite healthy today. Then it's not relevant, is it? See, in heaven, devil stands up and says, David, ah, oh, he's an adulterer. He's a murderer. Uh, and the Lord says, why are you bringing this up? Well, it's gross. It's disgusting. It's a break of the law. It violates things. It's evil. Every sin must be punished. Every sin must be And the Lord says, historically, yeah, that happened. Yeah, that was gross. That was but you know what? David has a new heart and right spirit. He's not sick anymore. He's not rebellious. He's not self-centered. He's not arrogant. He doesn't exploit people. He loves others more than self. He's well. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. The past doesn't matter. As long as you have a new heart and right spirit, it's no longer I that live what Christ lives in me. What matters is, are you still operating on those same motives so you still exploit others, take advantage, cheat, lie, murder, commit adultery? That's the issue, the nature of the character, not the historical symptoms that's why Christ said, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at woman with lust in your heart. The behaviors are the symptoms of the unconverted heart. But the legal model, the symptoms are what matter, not the condition of the heart. Yes? But I think for, for a lot of people, you give your heart to the Lord, but you have old habits and patterns that uh, keep coming up. So you're like Paul that says, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't. Who's going to rescue me from this? Even in his own life, he saw things recurring that he didn't want to do, but he found himself... And the key there is the condition of the heart. It's not the condition of the behavior. The converted man, when it will pray, like Romans chapter 7, when you find yourself doing a behavior, the heart that that is converted is sick over, I hate being this way. Oh, deliver me. But the unconverted man goes, hey... They deserve that. They deserve that smack in the face. They deserve me to curse them because they were being, they deserve the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth. They deserve what they got and they had no right to treat me the way they did. That's the unconverted response. The converted response is, you know what? I didn't need to scream and curse at them. That, that was not the thing. To, Lord, I am so weak. They just, they just caught me off guard and I wish I had more grace and more kindness in my heart and we're grieving in our soul over the shortcomings we make. That's the difference. Yes. So when we resent the thief on the cross, living as they did and last minute being saved. Or when we resent someone else, we think, well, how? why should they be saved when they did this or that or whatever? It really says a lot more about our hearts than about well, them. Yes, yes and no. Yes, it does. In, in the way you're presenting, it does. But it's also truth that pe- the thief on the cross doesn't represent most of the people you're talking about. Right. 
The thief on the cross, uh, we don't have any history that he actually had been presented with the clarity of Christ's character before that moment. He had heard about him, he'd heard some miracles, but it was at that moment he saw him forgiving the people who put him on the cross, forgiving the ones who were mocking him, that this was where he really saw his character for the first time. Others, however, throughout life have had these things presented to them, and they make the decision over and over, like Pharaoh, over and over. Pharaoh had truth presented, and Pharaoh was convicted, initially gave in, and then hardened his heart, and then more truth, and convicted, and give. And so Pharaoh, over and over and over, in occurrence of courses, kept hardening his heart, so that truth became less and less impactful on him. So if you have a life history where you do that, then at the deathbed experience, it's really not as likely you're going to be able to reach out and connect with the Holy Spirit because you've got all these layers of justification, rationalization, self-distortion. You actually feel that you're actually okay. Yes, nothing dismisses accountability and and like you say, repeated behaviors do affect us very greatly. What, what do you mean by accountability? Account- That's a legal word. Well, no, we're all accountable, accountable for our choices in life. To whom? To God and to ourselves and to others. How does God hold us accountable? How does He hold us he accountable? He asks us to forgive our, our, forgive those that have harmed us and also to. And if we don't forgive them, how does He hold us accountable? Natural. It's a natural law. Ah, okay. And what happens if you don't forgive somebody? We harden our hearts. There we go. And what, if we harden our hearts, who do we alienate ourselves from? God. And we don't participate in His healing remedy, and thus we sever our own connection with Him. Yes, he leaves us accountable to the realities of how he's constructed life. Yeah, and I think the thing I was thinking of was that it's not the other person, it's how we respond that we need to stop and say, you know, look at our own, where, we come, where we're coming from. If, if a person is resentful of someone else, there is... Uh, it's an evidence of hardness in their own heart yeah. and the lack of love and or unhealed wounds that they need to heal in their own heart. Right. Yes. And that's separate from the other person's yep. issue. Now, so here's Galatians 3, 6-9 from the remedy. Consider Abraham. He trusted God, and his trust was recognized as righteousness because the distrust caused through Satan's lies had been removed, and through trust he was endowed with a new heart, right motives, and Christ-like principles. Be clear on this. All those who trust God, as Abraham did, experience the same transformation of character and are considered children of Abraham. The scriptures foretold that God would set the Gentiles right with him by trust, just like Abraham, and announce this incredible good news to Abraham. All nations, peoples, and ethnic groups will be blessed through you. So those who trust God experience healing of heart and mind, just like Abraham, who trusted God. And that's the issue, yes. Reading from the Amplified Version in James about Abraham, of James two twenty-one through 23 Was not our forefather Abraham shown to be justified or made acceptable to God by his works when he brought to the altar as an offering his own son Isaac? You see that his faith was cooperating with his works and his faith was completed and reached its supreme expression when he implemented it by good works. And so the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed, adhered to, trusted in, and relied on God, and this was accounted to him as righteousness, as conformity to God's will in thought and deed, and he was called God's friend. And James, what was that? James 2, 21 through 23. And, what do you th- and, and how do you as hear that? Conformity to God's will in thought and deed, and he was called God's friend. He was righteous. Mm-hmm. 
in that deed, he was righteous, and he, so he was called righteous. Do, do you see this wasn't a declaration? This was an act of righteousness because it was an act of doing... It was an act of doing what he understood was the right course for him in God's plan. He did what was right. And therefore, and he did what was right based on his trust in God for the outcome. And that's what righteousness is. I trust you, God. And even though this goes against my inclinations, even though this goes, it makes terrible fear inside of me, even though I'm very insecure about it, I trust you. And I choose to do what you have shown me is the healthiest course of action. Trusting you with the outcome. So, Tim, in that process of making right, you were talking about like if they curse and swear and all the rest, part of that heart change is oftentimes to then apologize and to make things right. So as the past comes to one's mind, it's not so much that legal justification, it's not that legal justification with God, it's that heart change of then wanting to be able to heal wounds that the one has created. And uh, that changed heart is reflected then in action, so... In the, uh, in the Sunday's lesson, and that's just to read Genesis at the top, um, 12, 1 through 3, and it just cutting to the last sentence there, it says, God speaking, I will bless those, talking to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. What do you think that means? What law lens are you seeing it through? <laughs> See, those at level 1, one through 4 of moral development will hear this as God has two faces. God has a kind and merciful side that blesses us if we do what he wants, but he also has a very stern and vengeful side that we just power to torment and punish if we don't do what he wants. God's going to do it. He's going to bless us. He's not going to bless us. How do you hear it? You can say if you follow the design, you'll reap blessings. If you go against the design, there are consequences that are natural. So let's see if we can put this together from this text. See how you think it through. Through whom was the remedy for sin, thus the restoration to righteousness coming? In this context, where we're at Genesis 12. Whom is the remedy coming? All right, who's the seed coming through? Abraham, and the seed with the capital S is who? Christ. So the remedy to sin is coming through Abraham. That's, that's what he just made this promise about, the Messiah. Then what would it mean contextually for someone to bless Abraham? Wouldn't it mean that they value, cherish, rejoice, celebrate, identify with Abraham and Abraham's mission to support the fulfillment of God's purposes? And wouldn't such persons, uh, what would such persons do when presented with the opportunity to partake of the remedy if they're blessing Abraham and supporting? Wouldn't they enthusiastically open their heart and trust as Abraham does? Thus, they're blessed for blessing Abraham. How, how about what does it mean to curse Abraham? If somebody's against Abraham, how do you think they'll feel towards Abraham's descendants? And Abraham's plan and the purposes that God are trying to fulfill in Abraham. If they're cursing Abraham. Do they want to see Abraham bring about and be successful? Or do they want to undermine Abraham and destroy what Abraham's trying to do? If they're cursing him. And if they're trying to destroy Abraham and what Abraham's trying to do, then what's their likelihood of participating in the whole outcome of the plan coming through Abraham's descendants? And if they don't participate in Christ, then what happens? Lost. So what does it mean biblically to be cursed of God? Cutting oneself off. And is there a Bible text that can support that? The, the, the Jews used it on Christ. Cursed is, cursed is one hung on a tree. Cursed, what did God do to it? What did God do to the one hung on the tree? My God, my God, why are you torturing me in hell? Why are you raining fire down? Why are you beating? Why have you 
forsaken Forsaken me. Let me go. And so the curse of God is the curse of a loved heart who lets go the one who insists on separating intensely. So you see in Hosea, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, have longed to take you as a hen takes her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. So when you curse Abraham, this is in the context of the promised Messiah. You're cursing the whole plan for healing. You're rejecting it, and God, sadly, leaves you to your choice. Since we're looking at Abraham and Isaac as a type um, of Christ in a way, how, and we're looking at it through the natural law lens, how do you understand the outer court and the, the things that happen in that ceremony as that type of Christ in the natural law lens? And it's a great question. The question that goes through my mind is, do I want to spend the 30 minutes necessary to answer that question? <laughs> it's a great question. And we have uh, several lessons on it where we've spent the entire hour answering that question, going through some of the symbolism. Highlight view. We'll give you the highlight view. And, uh, and if you see me afterwards, I'll give you the actual lessons where you can go and get the whole long, lengthy thing where you can find that. Um, the, uh, the Old Testament system was a metaphor and acted out um, Object lesson, story, teaching God's plan to take people alienated from him and restoring them to unity at one minute. At one minute, atonement, a unity with him. So we're bringing people who are most distant from him and we're slowly bringing them back into harmony with him. This is what the whole plan is generally teaching. And then, and then there are two general types of people. There are people who are converted to Christ's side and then there are people who are in the world still. These are represented by two groups within the system because this is a stage, okay? The, the whole thing is a, is a stage, a play. It has costumes. It has a script. And they're to follow the script to carry out the, the play. And in the play, people hold different roles. The, the tribe of Levi represents the people who are converted on Christ's side. Thus, they wear, the priests wear robes of white representing right character or being restored to righteousness. The other Tribes represent the unconverted peoples of the world who, through the witness of the Levites, will come to a knowledge of God and reconciliation and restoration to him. In the uh, court, there was, in the most outer portion, the portion most distant from the holy place, or the most holy place where the ark was, was the brazen altar. And the brazen altar was very large, and it represented, made out of brazen, brazen, brass, and so forth. It, it represented bronze, um, the unconverted heart. And thus, the, the, all the tribes, except for the, the, the Levites, when they would commit individual sin, and they would come in and do the whole system, their sacrifice was placed, and the blood was poured at the base of the altar, put on the horns of the brazen altar, and burned on the brazen altar. And the, and, and the fire represents the, um, the spirit, uh, burning out the defects of character, and, and renewing us in righteousness, and so forth. The horns on the altar, horns represent power, and they're very large on the brazen altar, they're very small on the golden altar, they represent the, the selfish character traits, of our own rebellious power that we want to do things our way and the blood of Christ is applied to all the horns representing that we are dying to our way of doing it. We're accepting the character of Christ and being renewed by that process. Uh, And then the the priests, when the priests would do a sacrifice, um, the priests sacrifice 
the blood would be taken into the holy place, sprinkled seven times before the veil, and then placed on the horns of the golden altar. And the golden altar represents a heart that is golden, Christ-like, renewed, reborn. But yet we're still struggling. In Romans chapter 7, we still stumble and fall. And when we stumble and fall, that's um, placed on the golden horns because our, our rebelliousness is much less. We still struggle with that selfishness, but we really want to overcome it. And so those horns are much smaller. Seven times before the veil, because the veil is a barrier between us and our unity with God. If you were, boy, there's so many points I have to go. Okay. I guess that would trip up people that are looking at it in uh, the uh, legal mindset is that, you know, the transference of sin from the sinner to the lamb and then that being transferred into the, um, Yeah, that that is that is a projection made up by some some very um, uh, well-meaning people that is not borne out in Scripture. Um, the The idea is that sin gets transferred, the sanctuary gets contaminated by the record of sins being recorded there, and therefore this building needs to be cleansed because it's now been contaminated and it happens every year. If you look in Scripture, you can't find a place in Scripture where the blood of the sacrificial animal contaminates. It never contaminates. Anything that came in contact with the blood of the sacrificial animal was cleansed or made holy. Everything. And if you think metaphorically, if this one projection, well, confess sins on the head of the animal, those sins are carried into the sanctuary, the sanctuary is not contaminated by the record of those sins, then think it through. Okay, sin comes into contact, if you want to use this kind of very childish way of thinking about it, very concrete way of looking at it, but sin comes in contact with Jesus the blood of Jesus, and sin wins. The blood of Jesus now leaves contaminated. That's what that, that's what that is teaching. Because now the blood of Jesus is contaminated with sin and it records that contamination in the sanctuary. But in the scripture, anything that the blood touched became holy. And it was set aside for sacred purposes. Even if it was touched with accidentally, they spilled the blood on it, it became holy. Never came, came contaminated. And, but the blood of any other animal... Any other animal that wasn't the sacrificial animal contaminated. And so my view is, because of that, that the whole metaphor is teaching. And so when they confess their sins on the head of the animal, it's an object lesson. Teaching what? Well, as soon as the sins were confessed, what happened next? What was the very next action? Killed. By whom? The sinner, not the priest. Not the priest. The sinner cut the throat. Now... The life is in the blood according to Leviticus, and what's the blood do? It circles. It circles. Remember the law of love is the law of giving? In every living system, it's circling. And so what it's teaching is when you sin, you sever the design. You sever the circle of life. Sin breaks the law of love, and therefore death happens. It's a consequence for breaking the design. Just an object lesson. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Thus the Lamb took the sinful condition upon himself, suffered the consequence for the purpose of remedying or setting humankind back into God's design. And thus you see the application of the blood throughout the system is the partaking of Christ into the character of the individuals who have trusted in him. Thus we were renewed in righteousness, not condemned or, or contaminated by transferred sin. Other examples? There's so many. So much. The symbolism is so rich. Let's look at the, most, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had a box. The box was made out of a porous wood known as acacia wood. And then it was covered in gold, and all the defects were filled in with the gold. So it was smooth, gold-covered. And on top of it was a lid made out of solid gold. And on top of the gold lid was a uh, two cherubim on top of the gold lid. 
Now, there were three things that went in the ark. What went in those ark? Three things. The staff, manna, and the ten. Now, a couple of interesting things here, because you, if you look at the symbolism, what was taught here. How many sets of ten did they get? In other words, stone, written law from God's finger. How many sets did they get? Two. Two. What happened to the first set? Came down, having an orgy, he breaks them. Which set went in the ark? Wait a minute. I thought we teach that the law is broken. And, the, and, and Jesus, the, the covering, covers our, the broken law and hides the broken law. If they wanted to teach that the broken law was covered by the ark, then the broken law would have been what went in there. The broken law did not go in there. What went in was the unbroken law, not the broken law. It's not a legal system going on. It's regenerative. The box underneath the lid, the lid, by the way, solid gold represents Jesus. The lid represents Jesus. The box with all its porous, corroded defects represents the, the sinner who has been fully restored to righteousness. The gold represents the character of Christ that we've partaken of. It's not ours. And it fills in all the defects and makes us holy and pure of gold. And then what goes in the box, which is in our hearts, three things. You mentioned them. What order did they go in? They went in a particular order. What came first? Manna. Manna, Exodus 16. Manna came first. Manna, Jesus said in the New Testament, I am the bread of heaven that has come down if you haven't. Okay? So the first thing that we must do is we we must come to know Jesus. We must partake of Jesus. The second thing to go in the ark was? The body of God. No, the law. So once we partake of Jesus and know him, we come to trust him. We open our heart. And we open our heart and love, I love you, Jesus. I give you my heart. Do within me what you will. And what does he say in the new covenant? Then if you do that, I will write my law on your heart and mind. So the law goes in next. And once the law of God, which is the law of life, the design protocols for, law, for life, the, the law of love is written in the heart, then we who were dead in our trespasses and sin come to life and bring about the peaceable fruits of righteousness. The dead staff begins to blossom and bring forth fruit. That's us. That's what the symbolism teaches. Okay, and there's so much more, I don't have time to do more. It says in the last paragraph of Sunday's lesson, it says, many of us are tested as Abraham. When you hear this word tested, this concept of being tested, what comes to mind? Is God examining you like a school teacher in order to find out how much you know? Is that what you, you know, you get tested at school, don't you? Is that what's going on here? God's examining you like a teacher to see how much you know. Get one wrong? <laughs> One wrong answer, baby. You get an F. Yes. The word that was used for test in this instance was not the usual word for test in Hebrew. It was the word nis, which was symbol of a banner of victory. It's a rallying point. When you had a victory, you had a nis. Okay. That was a demonstration to everyone around you that you had won. Ah, so let's, get, let's push that then, and, and let's push this. Keep that idea in mind as we ask a couple more of these test questions. Is God testing you like a human government test its operatives to see whether you're loyal or treasonous? No. You know, the lie detector test. He knows. Is that what he's doing? Is God testing you to see how much you can take before you break? No. He knows. No. So, is there a design law in operation here on this testing, this niece? It's a law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, what must you do with it? If you're a mathematician, you want to get better at math, what do you have to do? 
You have to work problems. If you're a pianist, you want to be a better pianist, what do you have to do? If you're an artist, if you're a Bible scholar, if you're a person who loves their spouse and you want to get stronger in your ability to love, what do you have to do? Practice. Yes, you do. You have to actually love, don't you? Yes, you do. Okay? This is because if you don't use it, you lose it. So we read in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because we know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This testing, what does this mean? It's how reality works. If you were had brokenness in your life, and how many of us, because of our inheritance from Adam, have brokenness in our life? But you had brokenness, broken leg, and you went to see Russell, physical therapist. After six weeks in a cast, you will not only have brokenness, you have weakness. How many of us have weakness in our life? Weakness in our faith. And we want to get strong. What's Russell going to do for you? He's going to give you exercises to do. And maybe he starts you out with your, with your leg on the weight thing with five-pound weights. Push this ten times. Take a rest. Push it ten more times. Five-pound weights. Maybe he starts you out with five-pound weights. And after a while doing that, boy, that's easy. That's nothing. What's Russell going to do after that? He's going to put... 10 pounds on you, and it hurts again, and it's hard, and you have to push, and you've got to work, maybe you're going to sweat. And then after a while, though, that's not hard. What's he going to do? He's going to increase the weight. And he's done this like five times. You're up to 35 pounds now, and are you starting to think, what is wrong with this guy? Every time I seem to get a victory, he just puts more on me. Is that what you think? This is how people think. Lord, give me more faith. Give me more faith. The only way you can get more faith is for you to exercise it. And the only way to exercise it is to find yourself in situations that you can't handle in your own strength. That you must trust him to get you through. And thus, this is the considerate pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith developed perseverance. Just like the test... See, when you uh, want to exercise a muscle, technically that's stressing it. You're stressing the muscle. That's what you're doing to it. Are you stressing it to destroy it or to strengthen it? That's a design law, the law of exertion. Same thing comes with your capacity to trust somebody. The more difficult situations you've put your life into their hands, the more your trust for them grows. That's why soldiers in foxholes who have put their lives in their buddies' hands and they've had each other's back have deep trust in those friends. It was a terrible situation to have to be in. There's another element of this testing, especially in this case, and that is that there might have been angels or unfallen beings that had questions about Abraham's uh, character because he had he lied about his wife, he had taken a a second wife, he'd had a, a different son, and God's providing evidence, just like He did with Job. Yep, yep. He's, he's giving evidence of. His plan of salvation and applied in the life of Abraham and the evidence revealed that Abraham is willing to give up his own son. Just like a physician who's done some type of treatment on somebody or a physical therapist has said this new type of uh, exercise really helps strengthen, at some point, well, we don't believe that, but bring him out and show it. There it is, yeah. Same. Okay, good. All right, so let's jump to We have a couple really big points to cover in the lesson still. Monday's lesson, it talks about Lot as a relative of Abraham, and then it talks about uh, living in the wicked company uh, in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, think about Lot for a minute. Where do you find Lot in the New Testament? Peter refers to Lot in the New Testament. Anybody remember how he describes Lot in the New Testament? Tortured. Tortured, but he, yes, Lot was tortured by and why? 
Buy and why? Tortured by the, the evil around him. That's the buy. Why? According to the scripture. Well, how does Peter describe him? As a righteous man. Right. That the righteous man Lot was tormented in his conscience by the wickedness going on around him. This is how. So when you think of Sodom, do you think the primary evil in Sodom had to do with maintaining or not maintaining healthy sexual boundaries? No. Because that's how it's almost always taught. Well, let's look at this case then. Think of Lot. Think of Lot who is a righteous man according to the New Testament and was tormented in his mind. When the men of the city turned out and demanded to have the angels who were in the form of men to sexually abuse, what did Lot do? What was his action? He said, don't do this. And? I'll read to you Genesis 19, 6-8. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Uh, let, them, let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you like. But don't do anything to these men for they've come under my protection. Oh. Why are the daughters under his protection? Definition of righteousness, isn't it? <laughs> Remember, he's considered a righteous man in the New Testament. <laughs> Pardon? But not a good father, willing to give his daughters up. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. He didn't go for his daughters because they're not that kind of guy. Uh, okay, wait. Well, so, so, so we're going to go there then. Okay. So then, let's uh, remember the question I'm asking. The primary question I'm giving this evidence for is: Was the primary issue of unrighteousness in Sodom sexual? Yeah. That's the issue I'm going for. It was selfishness. After Lot leaves Sodom, he eventually has children. Who the mother of his children? His daughters. Hmm. His daughters are the mother. He has ancestral relations with both his daughters the Mo- and becomes the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Cave. Yes, it's true the daughters got him drunk. Yes, it's true the daughters initiated and got him drunk, but consider for a minute the options here. If somebody gets drunk and then does something like this, somebody gets drunk here in town and then has sex with your 14-year-old daughter and they're 35, you're going to go, well, he was drunk. It's, it's, it's the 14-year-old's fault. <laughs> well, it's not Lot's fault. The daughters got him drunk, right? Lot has no responsibility here. He said he didn't know it. Uh, really? Yep. Then, then think of the next options. Where were they living at the time? In the mountains, in a cave. Even in his drunk state, how many people could he possibly think were around for him to have this relationship with? He's living in a cave in a mountain. And how long did he live in the cave? For some time because he's afraid to go near the cities. <laughs> Do you think he thought it was a pillar of salt? He knew it wasn't his wife, right? So we excuse that. If you're drunk, you can have sex with someone that's not your wife and you're good. Even if it's not your daughter, it's, it's all good because you're drunk. said he was unconscious. So how many men can really function sexually unconscious? Okay, I'm not going for that either. Okay? So here's the implications, guys. The issue in Sodom was not primarily about sexual fidelity. That's not the issue. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. Now, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters are arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you've seen. What made them so wicked is they were selfish, they were greedy, they were proud, they were arrogant, they lacked compassion, they would exploit other people. So Lot... When the men of the city, came, the angels came in the form of men, demonstrated hospitality to the strangers, brought them in his home, provided for them, and put a hedge of protection up around them, and was willing to sacrifice his own daughters, in this case, to protect others. 
It was a, it, you may not value the way he did it, but it was still an act of self-sacrifice on his part. These are my daughters, and if you understand the culture at that time, they had value. Daughters did not have a lot of individual rights. They had value that fathers would trade for great dowries and so forth to get for someone to buy the hand of their daughter. So they, had, they were property in a certain way, but he was willing to sacrifice them to protect. It was perverted by the times and the culture, but the heart motive was, I want to protect others rather than exploit others. Now, are we suggesting that sexuality cannot be, am I suggesting sexuality cannot be abused, exploited, there are no acts of sexual sin? Absolutely not. I'm not suggesting that at all. People can abuse themselves in all kinds of ways, and sexual, um, uh, uh, various exploitation abuses is, is absolutely one of the ways it happens. I'm just saying in Sodom, the primary issue was character that manifested in sexual um, exploitation of others. That was the primary issue. I'm going to jump, the, jump over the war because there's something I really want to get to, um, the war where Abraham went. And that is uh, Tuesday's second paragraph. It talks about um, how he left things behind. And as we move forward, we must leave things behind. And I want to really talk about that in closing. Do we leave behind our past when we come to Christ? And if so, in what ways? Well, number one, when we come to Christ, we're to leave immaturity and move towards maturity. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. In the context where you find Paul saying that childishness is put away, what's the context of the, para, para, of the chapter talking about when he says this? 1 Corinthians 13, if that helps anybody. It's the context of love. Love. It's the love chapter. Love is mature. Love is selfless. Children are Selfish. That's exactly right. They th- so think through those four, those seven levels of moral development. The first four are all self-motivated, including the, the, the penal legal model. Level one, they're, they're all based on fear. Fear, of, not, fear of, of being punished. Fear of not getting the right deal. Fear of rejection by others. Fear of getting in legal trouble. Those are levels one through four. Very self-referenced. Additionally, children have magical thinking. It's normal for children to have magical thinking. Magical thinking, step on a crack and break your mother's back. Break a mirror, get seven years bad luck. Um, My daddy moved out because I didn't eat all my peas. If I'd ate all my peas, my daddy wouldn't have moved out. This is, this is, and children think this way. My brother was killed in a car wreck because I didn't do my homework. If I didn't do my homework, my brother wouldn't have been killed. Magical thinking. Magical thinking is when you associate unrelated events and reality as if they have causal relationship. That's magical thinking. If I say this prayer every day for 30 days, then God's going to bless me. Book sold 14 million copies. That magical thinking did. This is very, very childish. Or, if I claim the blood of Jesus in my heavenly record, then I'm declared to be righteous even though I'm not. Magical thinking. We have to put this childish way of thinking behind us. Come up to full maturity as we move forward. Yes, you had a comment. It's like when the disciples asked Jesus, what sins caused him to be like this? Him or his parents. Yeah. That magical thinking. Yes. Well, what, well, who sinned that this man... See, they were connecting the, the behavior of either his parents with the fact that man was born blind. That's magical thinking. Because there's no direct causal relationship there. As if if you behave right, then, you know, then, then somehow your behaviors cause nature to, to transform itself. All right. So we leave behind our childishness, our immaturity for maturity. That's what we leave behind. How about we leave our past mistakes behind? 
Philippians 3, 13 through 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And we stop living in guilt over past shortcomings. Stop beating ourselves up and accept and embrace the new hearts. The example I gave earlier of recognizing, hey, you know what? I might have had symptoms that manifested in those behaviors years ago, but I have a new heart and right spirit. And, and it's not about the past symptoms, it's about am I still struggling with that same sickness today? To learn from it, not forget it, but to not be trapped in it. Yes. How about leave our losses behind and move forward? Jesus said in Matthew 8.22, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. When my father died, I grieved. And there is an appropriate time for grieving. But in my grieving process, and I was working through the loss of my dad, I, w- I realized that I would not see my father again by staying stuck in the past. The only way I was going to see my father again is in the future, not in the past. In the past, I'm not going to see him. In the future, when the Lord comes, that's where I get to see him again. So I have to let go of the past and move forward. And then the question came, is there something we can do to hasten the day? And if we can actually free people's mind from this infection that clouds the world, take the true gospel, the kingdom, to the world as a witness to all nations, the end will come. So press forward to the mark for leaving behind the loss, pressing forward. I, I, saw, I used to watch a, a, a science fiction program on TV many years ago called Deep Space Nine, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine. In the very opening of the very first episode, um, Cisco, the captain uh, of this ship, there's a, there's a, a ship is attacked by an alien species, and they had their family on the ship. His son gets to a, a rescue shuttle, but his wife is trapped in a burning room with a big beam on her, and he can't get to her, and, and they drag him out, and, she, and he loses his wife in this first episode, and she dies on that ship. And then through the next five, six, seven years of this series, every so often <clears throat> uh, he, he, is in, he encounters these, these beings who s- supposedly live outside of time. They do not live in linear existence. They live outside of linear existence. And every time he comes to these beings, he has these flashbacks of his wife dying and, it, and he begins to cry and it begins to hurt. And he says to them, why do you always bring me here? Why do you always bring me here? And they said, we don't bring you here. This is where you live. Get it? He, and that's when he broke and he realized, you know, and, and through the thing, they, they depicted how he had this undercurrent of frustration and irritability and he was mad at the world and he, because, because he lost his wife and he beat himself up because he blamed himself because he, and he never let go of that moment and he's stuck there. And many people who have lost, they get up and they go through the motions of life, but their heart stays stuck in the past. We must let go of the losses and move forward. And then we must leave our destructive habits behind. Our destructive habits. Put to death, it says in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. We must say no to those deviations from God's design. The Holy Spirit functions to bring light to your minds in ways you can comprehend and then convict you of the right action that you need to take in any given circumstance when you're open to the leadings of the Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit leaves you free to choose what you will do. If you choose to follow the Holy Spirit in those moments, then you get divine power to succeed in the choice. 
but you don't get the power until you make the choice. And many people I know that struggle with besetting sins or habit patterns, they pray for the power before they actually choose to surrender and make the choice for what's healthy. That's how I understand it works. We must leave our grudges and resentments behind. Love keeps no record of wrongs, it says in 1 Corinthians 13.5. And, and see the, the penal model? We must leave our grudges and resentments behind because God has a perfect record and he'll make them pay for you, baby. That's it. That's what they teach. Okay? He's got that accounting book and you're going to face it one day. And he's going he's to... No. Love keeps no record of wrong. God is? Mm. No. See, when you forgive another person, you don't change the other person. You actually pull out of your heart a thorn, a splinter, a seed of resentment, a seed of bitterness, a seed of anger. You pull that out of your heart and you refuse to let it take root in your heart. Because if you hold to resentment, if you hold to bitterness, then over the course of time you become like the person who's done you wrong. This is how sin spreads. We stop the spread by forgiving. Forgiving doesn't mean what they did was okay. Forgiving doesn't mean they get away with it. Forgiving means you refuse to be infected by their hatred. And then we must leave our disappointments and unfulfilled dreams and aspirations behind. Many people I see in my office have come up through homes in which their home, their childhood was very, more than disappointing often, oftentimes abusive and exploitive. And, and many of them hold a deep, deep-seated wish and desire to have a different mommy, to have a different daddy, to have a different childhood. And they, and they operate trying to fulfill that desire in so many of their adult relationships, trying to get that childhood over again. You can't get, history is over, it can't be redone. We can have new hearts and right spirits. We can be cleansed. We can be healed. We can be restored. We can grow. We can mature. We can't go back and redo history. We must leave those, those disappointments and unfulfilled desires behind. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have provided everything for our healing and our restorations in Jesus Christ. Lord, there has been a deep-seated misunderstanding about how you run your government, your law, your design protocols that have infected the entire world as you knew it would and you prophesied and through your spokespersons of old. But you've also prophesied that at the end of time there would be a worldwide message that would arise that would, that would set people's minds free and we, we ask to be part, participants in your plan that you will use us to, to know and to reveal the truth about your character that we can experience the freedom that comes in, in the knowledge of you and the, in the unity with you and you might allow us to share it with others that the world will be lighted and we can move forward into your eternal kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.